I talk to a lot of friends all the time who are like, yeah, like I want to start a company, but I feel like I need a PhD or I need this. I need that. You don't need any of that. You just have to like have the passion, have the drive, and you can surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and who can help you learn and grow. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. What's up, friends? Here we are at episode 49 of Business for Good. What a ride it has been. I was especially heartened here recently from one very regular listener, a successful serial entrepreneur who will go unnamed for the moment, that he is working on a really cool business idea to advance the sustainable protein movement at this time. After discussing it with him, we agreed that when he launches this new business, we're going to have to do an episode. So get excited. Stay tuned on that. I promise it will be worth the wait. And speaking of regular listeners, I do want to thank Brian in Maryland, who recently kept it quite real with me and told me that while he loves the show, he sometimes just doesn't love the audio quality of it. You know how they say that a real friend is someone who tells you not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear? Well, Brian is obviously that kind of friend. As a result, we have now switched recording platforms with this new episode being the very first one on the new platform. And I think you'll see. It's certainly an improvement. I'll be eager to hear your thoughts, so please let me know, and you can thank Brian if you like it. And if anyone deserves the best audio quality, it is certainly this episode's guest, Kimberly Lee. So think about how many plants there are on the planet, hundreds of thousands of different species. Yet when you look at plant-based meats, nearly all of them are made with one or more of just three of those plant species, soy, wheat, and pea. And there's good reason for it. Those plants are relatively cheap and plentiful. They taste good. They function quite well as alternative meats under certain conditions that have been studied at length. But what if it were possible to make meat alternatives with a different species than one of those three? In fact, a species so different, it's not even a plant at all. That's exactly what Kim Lee of Prime Roots is doing. Instead of seeking to build a supply chain for a new kind of plant protein, Kim is creating her own supply chain for making animal-free protein brewing a fungus called Aspergillus oryzae into whole food meat alternatives. Now, for those of you not familiar, fungi are not plants, nor are they animals. They're an entirely different kingdom of organisms that we call fungi. We typically associate fungi with mushrooms, but mushrooms are really just kind of like the fruiting body of the fungus, kind of like an apple on a tree. And in fact, most fungal species don't even and produce mushrooms anyway. But back to Aspergillus. It's also known as koji, and humans have been enjoying this particular fungus for centuries in the form of soy sauce, miso, sake, and more. But rather than using it as a processing aid, Kim's startup Prime Roots is simply using fermentation to collect the biomass of that fungus itself and turning it into not a plant-based meat, but I guess more of a fungus-based meat. As you'll hear, the idea for the company came to Kim while in a college course, Three years later, she's now raised millions of dollars, is operating a 12,000-square-foot production facility in Northern California, and has already released a flagship product, Koji Bacon. Yes, bacon made from the fungus, Koji, which I can personally attest tastes quite good. So enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with an entrepreneur who's betting that the next big thing in plant-based meat isn't going to be plants at all. If Kim has her way, just maybe... The next big trend among advocates for local artisanal protein won't be farm to table, but rather will be fermenter to table with Prime Roots brewing the way forward. I now give you Prime Roots CEO, 
Kimberly Lee. Kim Lee, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Hey, Paul, thanks for having me. Awesome to be with you. You know, I really regret that we are not in person because of the pandemic, because when we were originally planning on releasing this episode, we were going to do a cool tour of the Prime Roots office. We we're going to do some product tastings. It was going to be really cool, but never one to throw in the towel, even though we kept having to delay and delay and delay. You instead just shipped me some really awesome Prime Roots products for me to try on my own because I could not make it to Berkeley to hang out with you. So thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I cannot believe we tried to schedule this in March and it is now <laughs> August, nearing September, <laughs> and we're we're here now. So. Yeah, uh, the world throws you some funny curveballs, that's for sure. But I will tell you, one thing the world did throw me was some delicious Prime Roots bacon and other products, which really were fantastic. Uh, my my friends and colleagues and I all tried them at the Better Meat Co. and really enjoyed them. And as you know, and as I've seen it on Prime Roots social media, even my dog, Eddie, got to try some Prime Roots bacon. And he actually, surprisingly, is a pretty finicky eater, and he loved it. So you get two paws up from Eddie. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, my dog is also really picky just in general with food and he loves our bacon. He'll only have it crispy. I'm also a crispy bacon person, so I think he got it from me. <laughs> yep, the apple did not fall far from the tree, or rather, the bacon, the, the, uh, the bacon did not fall far from the from, from, the, dog. The, from the dog. But uh, yeah, as you know, I actually did give him some crispy bacon. But by the time I sent you that video, I was too lazy to cook it, so I just took it out of the package <laughs> and gave him like the uncooked bacon. And uh, I, I presume that your products are not approved, or maybe they are. Are, are they are they approved for use in pet food? Uh, I don't know if they are. We're not a pet food company, so I haven't really looked into that. <laughs> well, the, there's a group called AFCO um, that regulates all the ingredients that can go into pet food. And it is a, a pretty stringent thing. It's like it's way more stringent than for human food, actually, because they presume the dog may only eat that food. So they want to make sure it's all the dog foods are nutritionally complete. But I'm pretty sure that uh, Aspergillus is actually approved by AFCO. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there is some koji in some pet foods, actually. Yeah, so, could very well be. <laughs> well, I, re I really love the product, but for people who don't even know what Aspergillus is, we're going to get to that. Don't worry. But first, I just want to get into how this all started, Kim, because uh, how old are you now? I'm 25. So you're 25. You've been running this company for the last three years. You've raised millions of dollars in venture capital funding. I would imagine that many people looking at you would think, I'm older than her, yet look at what she's doing. Why have I not done this? Maybe they're thinking that. So tell me, how did it start for you, Kim? What was the idea for this company? And where were you when you wanted to start it? So... I'm not much of like a Steve Jobs fan, but something that he said that I listened to recently really resonated with me. Um, he says, you can't connect the dots looking forwards. You can only connect them looking backwards. And so my journey really starts from when I was a child. Um, my mom is a professional chef. And so I grew up in her kitchens, just really loving food. I definitely consider myself a foodie. Um, I love food. I've worked in the industry from the time I was 11, 12, like managing um, the back end of my parents' businesses and then really progressed into restaurant management. I know the ins and outs of hospitality and restaurants and food. Uh, and so by the time I 
went off to college, I had a solid like six years of full-time experience in the food industry, like saw the ins, the outs, the good and the bad. Um, Something that never really struck me until recently was how I had been serving people millions and millions of meals and had, I just loved being able to, to really see people being excited and really bonding over food. Um, it didn't really connect to me that like the food that we were serving, although it was delicious, uh, was also hurting our planet. Um, and it's because like, even if you're involved in making food, you are so disconnected because of how big food is and how broken our food system is. And so when I learned that over 15% or around 15% of greenhouse gas emissions are caused by um, animal agriculture, like meat, um, that really struck a chord with me. And like, it's more than all of transportation, consumer and commercial combined. Like I, as someone who's an environmentalist, um, couldn't reconcile that. So obviously as a foodie, it's hard because, you know, I grew up eating meat, um, went to the grocery store, looked at all of the meat options that were alternative meat options that were available. And I just, I love tofu, but I can only eat so much tofu. So I looked for the alternatives. They're all soy-based, wheat-based, really processed food, like really processed ingredients. The taste wasn't there. They're very mushy. This was definitely before Beyond and Impossible uh, had really stepped up and made products that were made really, really for meat eaters. Uh, And so I really took it upon myself to find a better solution of making better meat products that, um, you know, tasted like meat, looked like meat, um, and also had a nutritional profile that would be amenable to people looking for more of a whole food, more of a natural foods diet. Um, I, I think that, you know, processed foods, the verdict is out about whether, you know, they're good or bad. And there's a lot of nutrition research going into it. But I think that objectively, um, you know, less processed um, foods are generally better for you um, because like they're un- un- more unadulterated. Uh, and so that's what we set out to do. It's really make these whole food um, protein meat alternatives, starting with texture, taste, nutrition, just really no compromises. Um, and you men- mentioned aspergillus earlier. We use koji, uh, which is the colloquial name for it. Uh, and the koji is a beloved Japanese superfood. Michelin star chefs love it. Um, and we actually found that it has the natural texture of meat. So we grow it and we turn it into our meat and seafood alternatives. There are no compromises. Well, let's talk about that, Kim. So you went to UC Berkeley, right? And you, took, the, you took this class. So what, what, what's your major in? I did a lot of things at Berkeley. Um, one of the things that I was really interested in was the intersection of microbiology, which is what I did a lot of research in, um, and food systems and food science. Um, and so I took all of the, all of the toolkits of, of skills and, and things I learned in all of my classes, put it together. Um, and really just, that was the genesis of Prime Roots. Um, I was actually starting my PhD research in agricultural microbiology um, and kind of went sideways and said, hey, like I can use my skills for something way more impactful today um, rather than sitting in a lab or doing research for another like five, 10 years. <laughs> so you're in this alternative proteins class at UC Berkeley, as the story goes. Is that where you have the idea to explore koji as an alternative to meat? Or had you already been thinking about that even before taking this class with Professor Ricardo San Martin? 
the class was a really important part of a exposing me to the problems of animal agriculture and then within that context being really incubated and like being also working in a lab at a time really was where the idea was born that we could use fungi use koji to make better meat products um and it everybody else in the lab it was the first year the lab was being run um everyone was looking at plant-based or cell-based and we thought there was something interesting in the middle Mm-hmm. And so had, had you, I mean, I, I presume you had heard of Koji before, but had you thought about its use as a potential meat alternative prior to the class? No, I didn't even think very much about meat alternatives because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't understand the problem. Um, I, I was a lover of the environment. Um, I was studying, one of the things I was studying was environmental science. Uh, and I just really, like, we had in school, you learn a lot about the problems and especially going to Berkeley, you can feel really, you're really down about how like the world is burning around you. There's so many problems. And I realized that the professors weren't going to tell me how to fix things as if they knew the solutions or if there were solutions, they'd probably be doing it. Um, and so I think just a combination of being like really depressed about the state of the world and the environment, learning about how big, animal agriculture was on that problem. And then obviously the logical next step is saying, oh, let's make meat better. Um, mm-hmm. And then just having that technical background was like the, I guess the perfect breeding grounds for, you know, the idea of using koji for meat. Nice. So you mentioned, Kim, you know, if you think about plant-based meats today, most of the time they're coming from wheat, pea, or soy, or some combination thereof. You're talking about not using plants at all. You're talking about going not just to fungi, and most people think of fungi, they think of mushrooms, but you're not even talking about mushrooms. So tell us what it is that you are making alternative meats out of, and why are they better than making it out of plants? So we use koji, which is a fungi, uh, and koji is actually not foreign to most people. It's the um, it's an ingredient that's found in miso, um, in sake, and soy sauce. Um, so what happens in, for example, the miso making process is you take soybeans and you'll add koji, and the koji is actually what ferments the soybeans and makes it into an umami rich paste that we know and love. Um, so instead of using soy. Um, and being soy being the feedstock for the koji, we actually grow the koji um, separately by itself in a liquid nutrient um, broth, basically, so it can grow. Um, and so we harness the power of koji by itself. Um, and if you're trying to visualize it, it looks like chicken breast fibers, uh, where there's long white fibers that you can then use as the base for any type of meat and any type of seafood alternative. So when you think about that type of what's typically referred to as a mycoprotein or a protein from the uh, fungal kingdom, to my knowledge, the only product that is on the market is corn. That's Q-U-O-R-N, which is made from a a different species of of fungus than what you are using. Are you a fan of their products and has their their success been an inspiration for you? It's funny you bring up corn because I had the idea separately about knowing about corn. Um, and so I thought, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Why has no one done this? And if you do more research, their products mostly, mostly are vegetarian, not vegan because they use egg whites. Uh, so it didn't really come up for a while, but I kept searching and I found out about corn. Um, I actually drove 
three hours to get their turkey roast, um, <laughs> which I absolutely love um, because you can like see the texture and you can see like how fungi is a much better base for meat alternatives because you're eating the whole protein, you're eating the whole food, you're not disrupting any of the cells, doing any extrusion or isolation, which most um, plant-based alternatives use. Uh, and so corn is definitely an inspiration uh, to what we do. Uh, I think we do it slightly better because we use cleaner ingredients and koji uh, is has been eaten and consumed for over 8,000 years in the human diet. So it's very much known quantity as to its health benefits um, and also um, its properties. Well, let me ask you about that, Kim. And I've been wondering about this. So I ate your products, uh, several of them. I loved them. I felt great. No problems. Don't worry about that. Uh, but I do want to ask you, so this is something that has been consumed for a long time, as you mentioned, by humans. But my presumption is that it's in pretty small quantities. Like if you consume soy sauce or, or sake, like the amount of koji in there, my guess is pretty small. What you're doing though is making koji the primary ingredient. So let's say there was somebody who like to play devil's advocate was saying, hey, salt has been consumed by humans in small quantities for a long time, but it doesn't mean that you want to eat you know, a brick of salt. Uh, because that that actually and that dosage wouldn't be good for you. Have you ever um, done anything, whether looking at um, at uh, studies on this to eating such large amounts of koji comparatively to what people have eaten in the past? Yeah, uh, that's definitely something I thought about very early on, um, and it's it's funny because uh, we we've done a lot of uh, sake drinking <laughs> as mm. as kind of research mm, of um, and pure, pure Nigori, R&D of course <laughs> exactly um nigori sakes actually have a fair amount of koji um in it and uh, because it's unfiltered and then the um the other thing is if you look at tempeh um tempeh is soybeans inoculated with the fungi where and then the it forms this like really beautiful cake um and it's all all the white bits in, in tempeh, some have more, some have less, that's all uh, fungi. Uh, so there's a really similar, um, I guess, consumption level within tempeh as there are within um, our products. Ours probably has a little bit more, but um, tempeh and oncom and a lot of other traditionally fermented foods in Southeast Asia um, have high amounts of fungi. Cool. Well, I ate it and loved it. And I can assure you, Eddie uh, appeared to feel good as well. So at least you have a, a sample size of a couple folks here who, what, what who enjoyed it. Okay, what was your favorite? Uh, the chicken. Uh, yeah, I, I liked the bacon. I thought it was good, but I thought, um, it, I, was it a Kung Pao chicken? I forget what the flavoring was, but it was fantastic. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, I also love the chicken. It's one of my favorites. Um, and the, the texture of koji lends itself so well to making um any type of chicken breast chicken or chicken mm -hmm. products yeah well i i uh, i hope you'll do more of that i know uh, bacon has been very popular for you but i hope you'll do more of it because i, I think that chickens get the short end of the stick in life uh, quite a lot so i'm hoping that uh that we'll see some more chicken products but i, I thought it was delicious and um and I really enjoyed it. But let's go back to before the chicken. Let's go back to before the bacon, because my recollection uh, is that when we first met, which uh, was probably like a few years ago to my recollection, um, that you were actually focused on salmon and that you were making mm -hmm. salmon burgers. So why was that the first thing that you wanted to do and what led to the pivot away from doing salmon? Yeah, that was a long time ago. 
Um, we started life. The company was called Terramino Foods. Um, we focused on seafood and specifically salmon, uh, salmon burger, because we really wanted to a prove the our ability to grow koji um, and use it in a product. And we wanted to choose a hard product. I guess we're kind of a startup that takes the hard route at every single turn, <laughs> not because <laughs> I think it's because it, it yields you know great dividends in the long term. Um, and also it's kind of fun to do hard things. Hmm. Um, and so we, we wanted to start with seafood because it's pretty hard um, from a flavor perspective and a texture perspective. Um, so we wanted to start there really to prove the capabilities. And um, we actually were really successful in, be, in, able, in being able to create salmon. Um, and then we went on to validating tuna and a few other seafood products. Um, the pivot away from seafood really was dictated by our community. Um, we, we know that seafood is in the cards for us into, into the future. Um, it's really important. It's uh, seafood makes up about 40% of global protein consumption, but it's less than 1% of the alternatives. And so it, there's a huge space for seafood. Um, the problem with seafood, I think today is that, um, especially in the U S uh, it's, it's consumers aren't, um, aren't there yet in terms of their adoption of seafood, let alone their adoption of alternative seafoods. Uh, so the space is continually growing, and I see there being a lot of room in the future. Um, back to the community piece, uh, we had a, I guess we, we can make so many different things, and we had proved our capabilities as a platform, um, the Koji platform, to make everything ranging from chicken all the way to, you know, obviously our salmon burger. Um, we are kind of paralyzed as to, like, what to do next. So we said, hey, like, we're building a food company from the bottoms up. Um, and the interesting thing that we can do here is like, why don't we actually ask consumers, ask people what they want us to make? Um, and it's very unorthodox. Um, the food industry usually works, uh, like, you know, there's somebody at the top who makes the decisions, usually a, a white male who is not indicative of who the consumer is, which is, um, 80 to 90% females are making the food purchasing decisions. Um, uh, and you know, they're, they're not, not making food for people. They're making food for personas, uh, what they think people want. And so we said, hey, let's let's do this crazy thing. Let's just see if people will tell us what they want. And to our surprise, we got tens of thousands of people to give us input on what products they wanted to see. Um, it took a long time to go through everything. But from that, we actually saw that people wanted a bacon alternative, uh, which is why bacon right now is our main product. Um, so we're really going where people want us to go, where our consumer wants us to go. And we're building a food company of the future alongside um, consumers, alongside our community, where they are the center of our world, um, instead of saying, you know, the product or the platform is. Um, and yeah, so we make everything. We can make everything. Um, we're being really focused on the key things that our consumer and our community wants at first. Sure. That's very cool. So when you started the company, though, so when you were Terramina Foods, you're, you were still a student. Um, and my recollection of things is that you actually got some startup funding from Peter Thiel. Is that right? So we, um, the company did not directly get investment from um, Peter. Um, I'm a Thiel fellow. So uh, I was 
I had already, you know, stopped out of school, stopped out of my program and had gone full time into um, Paramino at the time, now Prime Roots. Um, so we have, I personally have support from the Teal Fellows and the Teal Fellowship Network. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's definitely been a great experience. Okay. And then you went into an actual, like an actual incubator program through Indie Bio, right? Uh, yes. The, uh, the timing is we went through IndieBio right after um, right after Berkeley, and then kind of after IndieBio, I was connected with the TL Fellowship, and uh, then and then at that point we had also gotten our seed funding, so about two years ago. Okay, and how much money has the company raised to date, and how many folks are working there now? So publicly, we've raised a little over four million. Um, and we are a team of around 15, um, we're growing every week and we're always looking for really mission driven individuals. Uh, we have a lot of open positions at the moment since we're going through a little growth spurt. Um, so just a plug, if anyone's looking to join a mission driven, (laughs) high energy team, we have positions open from everything from finance, operations, product development, you name it. (laughs) There's definitely a lot of, uh, room. That's great. Well, we can definitely include in the show notes, Kim, to, uh, I presume you have a, a website where it indicates what open positions Prime Roots has right now, right? Yes. It's, uh, cool. it's all on our website and you can see the positions. And I mean, you probably do this too, Paul, you know, at a startup, you can, not everyone fits into a certain position. So, uh, if there's not a position that, you know, really, really drives home what you are and who you are, um, feel free to reach out to us too. We, we make positions all the time. <laughs> yeah. I always say that it's, it seems like far preferable to try to, uh, fit a job description to a person rather than a person to a job description that you're going <laughs> like, to have a, a lot more success doing one rather than the other. Yeah. I've always thought that too. So there's a lot of companies trying to do mycelium meat alternatives right now. It seems like there's this explosion, uh, whether, you know, um, Wild Earth is using Koji in their dog food. You've got Nature's Find raising a lot of money to make mycelium meat alternatives and Meaty, or I think they used to be called Emergy Labs doing some, uh, the, the, uh, mycelium-based steaks as well. Where do you think that you stand in, in comparison to them? And, and how do you think that your products uh, differ from what they're doing? I think it's a great thing that there's more mycelium fungi-based companies in the space. Um, just as there there are many plant-based companies, I think there needs to exist many different fungi companies. Um, mm-hmm. I don't see them. I, I think that they are competitors in one sense, but more than anything, I think, you know, looking at Impossible, Beyond, um, all of these companies you mentioned, like we're all working together in a collective um, goal of expanding the size of the alternative meat market. Um, today, we are, I think, probably like one at most 2% of the total protein market. And there's so much room for growth. Hmm. And so it's yeah. great that we're all working on different applications of our fungi. Um, cause these all need to exist in tandem for there to be more choices, um, for the consumer. Like if you look at plant-based dairies, they're at 15% of the total dairy market. We have a long way to go. Um, right. and personally, I would love for there to be a plant-based, um, version of every single product at the grocery store. I think that would make me <laughs> so happy because, um, I'm actually a flexitarian. I'm not fully plant-based um, or vegan. 
And so if there was an option for every single product I consumed, I would very easily be plant-based. Hmm. Well, you know, so I definitely, you know, I, I purposely avoided using the C word com- competitors because I, I agree. I'm not so sure that, you know, just because Wild Earth also uses Koji, obviously they're not a competitor of Prime Roots. And, and I'm not saying I think that Nature's Find or others are either, but it is interesting because, you know, you've got, in the plant-based space, you have one company, Impossible, using soy, whereas Beyond is using pea, whereas mm-hmm. Prime Roots is using uh, Aspergillus, and you know, presumably um, Nature's Fine might be using some other different uh, fungal strains. So it, it's interesting because in the same way, there is a dramatic variety of plants from which you mm-hmm. can make plant-based meats. There are a, really a huge different number of fungal species from which you can make uh, mycelium-based meat. And so I, I do think that there will be an interesting race to see who can basically say, like, we've got the coolest or the best or the cheapest product or, or something like that. And to further emphasize what, what you're saying, Kim, uh, you know, look, there's room in the world for both McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's. There's room in the world for Impossible and Beyond. Surely there is room for, you know, a few different companies that are uh, exploring the fungal kingdom to make alternative meats. So I, I, mm-hmm. I totally uh, agree with you on that. And if it can be done more efficiently, um, if that's possible, um, then it would be a, a particularly great uh, advancement. So I want to ask you about that. Like right now, plant-based meat is typically sold at multiples over the cost of conventional meat. It's not mm-hmm. that it's sold at like 30 or 40% more. It's generally, you know, 300 or 400% over the cost of commodity meat. And this is one of the things that I think is holding the space back in terms of uh, greater adoption. You mentioned a moment ago that uh, plant-based meat is still a very minuscule portion of the total meat market. And uh, Christy Legawi, who's the, the founder and CEO of Rebellious Foods, she did a really interesting analysis and looked at it not just from a dollar portion, like what's the dollar value of plant-based meat versus animal meat, but the actual number of pounds, which from a sustainability perspective is far more important because you want to displace as much animal-based meat as possible, not just the dollars. And what she found was that about 0.2% of the pounds of meat produced in America last year were plant-based and 99.8% of the pounds were animal-based. So it's a huge, huge room for growth area when you still are only at 0.2%. Um, and her theory is, which I agree with, is that if the price can come down, you're going to see far greater adoption. So how do you see the price coming down? Because obviously your products are marketed right now above the cost of, let's say, conventional bacon. But how do you see yourself bending that cost curve? And what are the avenues that you want to take to try to get there? So on a efficiency perspective, we are by far the most efficient way of making a protein that is... um, you know, that has the ability to replace animal agriculture, Um, we can be priced at scale lower than the cost of factory farm chicken, uh, which is the lowest price meat. I think it's also decently unfair because there's a lot of subsidies and the farm bill diverts a lot of money that supports directly um, animal agriculture. And if anyone's listening here doesn't know what the farm bill is, I highly recommend you going to look it up. Um, It is one of the most effed up things in our food system. And I think it's holding us back um, just in terms of creating a healthy food system um, because it subsidizes really unhealthy uh, foods. And so I think that, A, well, you know, subsidized meat is very unfair. Um, 
is very inefficient. And so we're feeding on average, you know, 30 pounds of feed to get one pound of output from an animal because the animal has to eat food and um, expend energy. Whereas our fungi, um, they can actually make their own protein. Um, and so the koji takes basic nutrients, carbon, nitrogen, and it can actually synthesize its own amino acids and protein, which is really unique. Um, and so what that enables us to do is create the most efficient from a, a biological perspective, meat alternative, which at scale means that we will be able to compete with factory farm chicken. And so that's, you know, many years down the road, um, but we're working towards that. Cool. Well, corn is uh, very open about their processes. They talk about how they're, you know, the primary thing that they're feeding their fungi is, um, I believe, glucose. Um, are, are you open about what you feed to your little uh, koji spores in, in your broth there or no? Yeah, I, it's, uh, you know, similar. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I can't say exactly what it is because it's always evolving at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. We're optimizing the feedstock. We actually also are experimenting with a lot of um, different ways of recovering uh, very high nutrition, um, high energy feedstocks. So, for example, um, the I don't want to call it runoff. It's just like a side stream or a waste stream of like a tofu manufacturer or like a mm-hmm. tortilla maker. Um, it's very starchy water. Um, that that is outputted from those systems that goes into our drains and that's just wasted energy that we can actually reclaim and use to grow the fungi. So we're experimenting with a lot of different ways of growing the koji. Um, cool. So today I don't know exactly what it is. I mean, I, I would I would tell everyone if I knew. Uh, we are very open about you know how the koji is grown and it's you know, very similar to um, how you brew beer, how you. Uh, ferment alcoholic beverages. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I was listening to an interview actually on Adam Yee's podcast, just called My Food Job Rocks. And he was interviewing the uh, the founder and CEO of Hodo Soy, uh, the folks mm-hmm. who have really made tofu far more popular than it once was. And he was talking about uh, the same thing that you are, Kim, about how they had this co-product essentially, like the Okara that they just weren't using at all. And they have found ways to repurpose it and, and make other products or sell it to other folks rather than, I, th- I think you mentioned like they were just like using it for like cattle feed or something like that. Um, but uh, that they have found it to be actually quite a good co-product as well. Yeah, I think there's so many um, interesting ways of making our food system more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think like the big elephant cow in the room is really tackling how we make protein more efficient. Yeah, for sure. So let me ask you about that. So if you're constantly optimizing your process and your formulations and so on, have you filed for patents yet on your technology or is this still in the realm of trade secrets? The food industry, uh, it's really, trade secrets are king. Um, we do have patents that we filed on our process. Um, so protected from multiple avenues there. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a very complicated web of, you know, how do you protect your um, developments? And we've been working on the technology for over three and a half years. So mm-hmm. it's definitely evolved a lot. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. I read, Kim, uh, speaking of evolving, so you all have moved from a small facility to a 12,000 foot facility, excuse me, square foot facility that is in Oakland. Is that right? Uh, we're in Berkeley. 
in Berkeley, We're excuse me. Thank to, you. Very close to Oakland. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you for for putting it so diplomatically. Um, but yes, in uh, in Berkeley. Thank you. So that's of of course a, a pretty large facility for such a young company. So uh, sadly, because I couldn't come there, despite your generous offer to offer a tour, um, walk me through the facility now and walk walk us through like what will we see if we go into this twelve thousand square foot facility. So we have, um, our whole HQ is in this facility. And so we have all of our R&D, um, we have all of our office uh, space, everything is in one, um, in, under one roof. Uh, it's a, we have the full building to ourselves, which is really nice. Um, and, you know, we have uh, two kitchens, uh, essentially, that we produce all the food out of. And so you can imagine walking to a, uh, a commissary kitchen or a commercial kitchen. Um, you know, we have similar equipment even, uh, and we do all of our product production in there. We have R and D this right outside the door. So it's actually really nice to be able to take a product from an ideation phase and just a prototyping phase right into our, um, essentially our pilot plant to scale that up. Um, and so it's, it's a very, uh, very ad hoc type uh, <laughs> of environment because we like we when we got into the space it was a pretty much just a warehouse and we were thinking about you know putting walls up and making like new rooms and stuff and all we did now is you know we we've put together a bunch of racks and like we've made like pseudo walls and so it's it's very much what you would expect from a growing food startup <laughs> it's not super polished <laughs> uh, but it is nice that's cool. Well, I really hope to be able to be there sometime. It would be a lot of fun. So um, pandemic willing, uh, we will make it happen. Uh, what kind of volumes can you produce there? So, I mean, it seems like a, a pretty big space. Maybe you don't have as many walls as you might like, but I presume that you can put out, a, I mean, the products you sent, they look, I mean, first of all, they tasted good, but they looked extremely professional, well-designed, well-packaged. Um, so it, all of that, I presume, is happening within the walls of this uh, facility that you're in. So like, how much of it can you produce? Thanks, Paul, for the compliments. Um, we can, so we're in the process right now of scaling up. Um, and so w once we scale up, we'll be able to produce um, tens of thousands of pounds from our facility, um, which will be super exciting because we'll be able to really push forwards our mission of being able mm -hmm. to truly nourish people on planet. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Kim. When you say tens of thousands of pounds, that's a month, a year, or a week. Like what, what time frame are we talking about? Uh, 10,000 pounds a month. Cool. Oh, that's a lot of bacon. One strip doesn't weigh that much. So that's, that's really great. Good for you. It's a uh, lot of bacon. <laughs> uh, and, you know, people say, you know, you don't want to see how the bacon is made. I presume in your case that you'll be quite eager for people to see how it's made. We're very excited, um, to bring our community and bring people into the fold of mm -hmm. how, alternative meat products and, you know, how this new wave of meat can be and protein can be made. I think one of the largest criticisms of plant-based meats is how ultra processed a lot of them are. And, uh, there's a lot of satire and comedy now about how it's kind of like it goes into this black box and it comes out as a burger. Um, we really <laughs> want to demystify that. Um, and so we're, as we're scaling, um, as the pandemic goes away, we're really excited to be able to host tours. Um, we have an announcement in the works, uh, about a, um, uh, an, an offshoot type facility that we have, 
um, that will be able to really like show people what we do and get them to interact with us directly. So I'm excited to um, announce that hopefully like in the new year, hopefully the Hmm. pandemic will be better too. Very nice. That's cool. So people could see, for example, the, the brewery, so to speak, and, and watch how the, the Koji gets made. Um, and also get to experience the products, which I think is super important. That's great. Uh, that's really cool. Oh, good for you. Will, will that be in um, Berkeley as well? In the Bay Area. Okay. Um, and yeah, we're just super excited to have an open public space for people to come and hang out with us. Um, nice. It's very hard given the pandemic. We actually were um, hoping to do it this year, but the uh, it's funny, we, we signed the lease um, one week before shelter in place started. Mm, mm. Well, I, I can assure you that many things, uh, at, at the better meat co have been delayed because of the pandemic as well, which is a, a real travesty, but, uh, I, I hear what you're saying on that for sure. And it's definitely, um, you know, something that makes it a tougher environment for everybody. Um, you know, Kim, I want to ask you about this with regard to the protein content, because, mm-hmm. um, the protein, was very high, uh, in the products that, um, that you, uh, at least sent me. And, you know, a lot of the times plant-based meats get high protein because as you mentioned, they're using isolates or fractionates. So they're using plant proteins that are ha- plant products that have been, uh, basically fractionated in order to boost the total protein in the, in the food, uh, because you're discarding some of the other ingredients in there. You're doing a whole food product and it still has a lot of protein. And you've mentioned in other interviews that you can tweak the amount of protein that gets produced by the Koji. So tell us, how do you tweak that? And why do you have such, such high protein, even without isolation or fractionation? So in terms of the technology, the majority of the work that we do, um, the hard work is really done by the Koji. So um, in terms of tweaking the protein content in the end product, um, we can actually make meat technically with four times as much protein as actual meat. Um, it wouldn't taste, you know, right though because meat is a combination of fat and protein and other ingredients um but the the koji as its whole food as the whole fiber um it has upwards of 80 percent protein um and that you know comes partially naturally from its biology its ability to do that because plant you can't coax a plant to have 80 percent protein um but we can um we can get the koji to produce more protein but um, and, um, when we're looking at the end product, um, it's actually, it's much easier for us to make a product um, that has higher protein than the actual meat itself. Hmm. Well, that's really cool. So when you say you can do that, is that based on, you know, what you feed the Koji? Like in the same way, if you're thinking about raising animals, you can affect what the animal's uh, nutrition of their meat or their milk or their eggs is based on what you feed them. And I, I presume that's what you're saying here as well. As a combination of uh, what you feed it, how you grow it, you know, how you treat the koji. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, they're not sentient. <laughs> it kind of seems like they are. They definitely have personalities. Um, being a fungi whisperer, we've definitely, you know, learned a lot about how to grow fungi. Um, a lot of my friends call me uh, like the mushroom person. <laughs> you don't grow mushrooms, but I do know a thing or two about fungi. Uh, do you believe that music will alter uh, their rate of growth or make them any uh, quote unquote happier or less happy? 
I should try that. <laughs> uh, I, I only ask, I was debating this with a friend of mine, I don't know, several months ago, uh, who was arguing that he believed um, that in the same way that, for example, dairy cows will produce more milk when they listen to certain kinds of music compared to other kinds of music, that he thought that microbes might also react differently to different types of, uh, of music. And I asked him to send me any uh, actually like peer-reviewed published literature on the topic showing this, uh, which I, I have yet to receive. So uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But if I find any, I'll certainly be letting you know first, Kim. <laughs> Okay. Well, I guess we have a new set of experiments run then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, interestingly, that's why uh, Perfect Day, um, they were an earlier episode on the Business for Good podcast, but uh, they changed their name um, from Move Free to Perfect Day because of the Lou Reed song, uh, Perfect Day, which there was a study showing that cows produced more milk when they were listening to that particular song. Um, I don't know how, how reproducible that result is. <laughs> if it was just like a one-off, I don't know, but that's why they changed their name to, to Perfect Day. So, um, um, uh, maybe, uh, you went from Terramino to prime roots. Maybe there'll be some song that you find, uh, works really well. And, and then the next thing, you know, it will be called, uh, you know, pour some sugar on me from Def Leppard because they would probably like having sugar poured on them. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> I don't know why that song just popped in my mind. I haven't even listened to it in a long time, but for whatever reason, that song came into my mind and I thought, ah, they like sugar. They would like it poured on them. Um, <laughs> anyway, so there is a, a lot that would be great to talk about, but in the interest of time, I just want to ask you, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that you're 25. So I presume you were 22 when you started this company. A lot's happened in that time. Your life is a lot different now that you've raised millions of dollars and you're the CEO overseeing a lot of people, presumably who are, uh, many of them are older than you and, and have more experience than you do in, in certain fields. So how do you manage it? Like as a 25-year-old CEO of a company that's raised millions of dollars, do you think that there's any particular extra scrutiny that is placed on you? Uh, like how do you manage doing that? I think not so much of my age. Um, I have, I guess, additional scrutiny. Um, the Valley is a place where there are a lot of young entrepreneurs. Um, so it's not atypical. Um, I, I think that being a female entrepreneur definitely um, has its um, challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, this is, uh, there are many studies that show that when you're talking to funders, so like venture capitalists, they'll ask you different questions being a female founder versus being a male founder. Uh, and so it's really interesting, I think, kind of getting all being uh, a person of color, being female, and also being young. I think all of those things definitely make it, um, I, I would think make it harder, but I don't have the, I don't have the experience of not being a young female person of color founder. Um, but I think that even with any adversity, it's really important just to believe in yourself, believe in your mission, um, and, you know, do your best at, um, selling your dream. And so yeah. if anyone oh. out there is, you know, in my situation or in a situation where you feel that, you know, there's a lot of forces working against you, um, I can tell you that the best thing to do is be optimistic and keep trying. 
Well, that's really great advice, Kim. And it's reminiscent actually of a book I recently read called The Choice by um, Edith Eager. And she talks about, it's a very best-selling book, but uh, I was really moved by it. And, you know, she um, was imprisoned in Auschwitz during World War II and then has faced enormous adversity both prior to that, during that, and after that. And she moved to the U.S. and uh, got a PhD in psychology and now treats soldiers, even she's in her 90s and she still treats soldiers who have PhD. PTSD. And she makes the point that whatever adversity you're facing, um, that only you can embrace a victim's mentality. And, you know, nobody's endured something worse than her. I mean, she goes into these truly horrific stories about her time in Auschwitz. And she talks about the importance of resilience and choosing just to keep moving forward. Whatever adversity you face in your life, uh, she makes this point that you can choose to let it keep you down or you can choose just to keep on moving forward with your life. And uh, I was particularly moved by it. And um, I, I think it's a, a good message for all of us, no matter what type of adversity we, we might be facing. So that's, I appreciate your insights on that. That's really profound. And I think that um, for me, like a huge shift in mindset that has really helped me and my journey is really embracing failure. Um, or like the concept of failure. I never think of myself as failing anymore because I see failure and things that go sideways or like, you know, downwards as learning opportunities. Um, you learn, you know, hopefully you're not making the same mistake or failure twice, um, but really embracing the journey and embracing failure, I think is a really important part. Um, and the original question was about, you know, being young. Um, it's, I think youthfulness is actually one of my superpowers. Um, I, I think that being young um, and actually part of why I think Peter Thiel and a lot of his writings um, and what he said publicly, you know, he looks at young founders because they have the ability to see white spaces um, better than a potentially very seasoned entrepreneur, like older person starting a company that maybe has, you know, 20, 30 years in corporate America. Um, and so it's really interesting because you, you can actually embrace being young and like see it as a superpower, um, rather than being like, Oh, I'm young and inexperienced. Um, which I know a lot of, I, I talk to a lot of friends all the time, um, who are like, yeah, like I want to start a company, but I feel like I need a PhD or I need this. I need that. You don't need any of that. You just have to like have the passion, have the drive, and you can surround yourself with people uh, who are smarter than you and who can help you learn and grow. I love that, Kim. I really love that. It resonates so much with this core belief that I have as well, which is that, you know, sure, uh, academic credentials can be quite useful and important, no doubt about it, but they're not necessary. You know, there's so often people ask me, oh, you know, I, I want to do something good in the world. Like, and so what should I study in school? And they, what? Like, what are you like? What are you good at doing? You know, let's do that. How about how about that? Like, you know, you mentioned earlier, think about all the needs that you have. Like, somebody might think, oh, well, I'm not a microbiologist. Why would Kim want to hire me? Well, you also need accountants and HR people and graphic designers and you know, like all these things that somebody might be good at, and they're thinking that they have to go get a PhD in microbiology. Now, of course, if they have a PhD in microbiology, I'm sure you'd be happy to talk with them too. Um, but you know, you just you know, there's so many ways to be useful in the world for sure. Uh, so let me ask you, Kim, then, uh, you know, you're talking about um, experience and knowledge. Like if you could go back three years and knowing what you now know, you've been on this roller coaster ride of starting this company um, and growing it. Uh, if you could talk to the 22-year-old Kim 
and offer any advice from the 25-year-old Kim, now that you know what you know, what do you think would be the most important lesson that you might offer to your younger self? I would say the 22-year-old Kim, trust your gut um, and trust your instinct. I think the the biggest learning experiences, you know, that, that's what I call failures <laughs> now. Um, the the biggest times that we have, um, you know, experienced any type of, you know, things going sideways, things not going the way we wanted to go was really times, most of the time when I haven't trusted my gut. Um, and I have either deferred to someone more experienced or, um, or have, you know, succumbed to some external pressures. And when I think that trusting your gut as an entrepreneur is by far one of the most important things you, you should do and can do, um, that takes a lot of training. You can't trust yourself a hundred percent of the time, but you also have to know when to, and when not to trust yourself. Um, and that is a huge learning curve. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, I hear you on that. Um, so let me just ask you then, if you think about the journey that you've been on, Kim, uh, have there been any resources for you that you have found quite useful, whether it be books or speeches or anything that you think has been useful in your journey as an entrepreneur that you would recommend to other people who want to try to emulate some of the, uh, excuse me, some of the success that you're now having? Yes, this is going to sound really weird, but google.com and youtube.com. Are, <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard of them. <laughs> they are treasure troves of whatever knowledge and whatever you're seeking to do. I've learned so much from Google and so much from YouTube. Um, a lot of the time when people come to me and asking, um, you know, for questions um, or like how to troubleshoot something or about how something works, like I will go, the first thing I'll do is probably Google something. Um, and like Google as a skill is actually something you should develop. because um, <laughs> it's, it's actually hard to be a good Googler. Um, but that is where I start with most things when I'm, when I'm like puzzled about something or want to, um, learn about something new. I always start there. Um, the internet is such an amazing place. Uh, I actually grew up without, I'm young, but I actually know a life without the internet. Um, and I also have a deep appreciation for books. Um, I think medium articles are great and like, you know, getting advice and getting and learning things on the internet is great, but the, it is hard to have that long form storytelling that happens in books. And so I also, um, I buy a lot of books. I don't actually get time to read all of them, but hmm. uh, there's a study that says that, you know, uh, hoarding books apparently is, is also an indicator of success or something like that. So, um, <laughs> um, YouTube, uh, so funded by like the American library association, I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I definitely don't have like go to dashboards or go to places um, that are like resources. I start with Google and I start with YouTube and it is crazy how much you can learn. Okay. Um, 
interestingly, my wife, Tony, had a desire to revamp um, a bathroom in our house. And she certainly had no knowledge of how to possibly do this, but she ended up getting pretty far into the process just through watching YouTube videos and, uh, and going uh, to, you know, get the supplies that she needed. So uh, I was very impressed uh, that she could, uh, it's, it's not yet done, which is why I, I say that, you know, she's gotten a lot through the process, but uh, YouTube has really done a lot for her in that respect. So um, yep. good for her. <laughs> um, finally, Kim, as an entrepreneur, you have this really cool idea of, of using uh, fungal proteins in order to mimic meat. But I'm sure that you've thought about other ideas for helping to solve serious social problems as well. So presuming that you have thought of other ideas that maybe you're not going to pursue because you are busy doing prime roots, uh, are there any other ideas that you would think, hey, if a listener of this show were to go out and start this company, I think it would be really awesome? Oh my gosh. I have a spreadsheet, um, which is a decision matrix of like 200 different companies that I would love to start if I had the time. And I've actually like ranked them based on, um, everything from passion, impact, um, feasibility, you know, money needed. Uh, and so it's a pretty elaborate spreadsheet. So if anybody wants ideas, hit me up. Um, but the things that are definitely like top of mind for me are um, women's health, which is severely underfunded, considering women are 50% of the population. And there's so many, um, so many things that affect women that are just neglected. Um, and then the second thing is agriculture, uh, which I'll, I think I'll get back to after um, prime roots or with prime roots. Uh, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was going to be starting PhD research in agricultural microbiology. It is, agriculture is very broken. Um, monoculture, monocropping um, is definitely not a sustainable way of producing food. And that was the research um, that I really wanted to look into. I think there's huge opportunity to tackle that. Um, for me, it was, you know, saying, oh, wait, like all the plants that I want to make better grow better, like they're getting fed to animals. So if we reduce the burden of having to grow all these plants and feeding them to animals, which is really inefficient, um, I can make way more impact today, which is why we're starting with um, tackling the protein problem. But agriculture is huge and very broken. For sure. And I really can't tell you how much I admire, Kim, that you have this uh, spreadsheet with a matrix uh, of all of the uh, pros and cons and ways to factor in what you might want to do with your life. So that is uh, uh, perhaps the greatest window into your personality that might suggest why you've gotten this far, uh, actually. So I'm extremely impressed by that. My hat is off to you for everything that you've accomplished. And one quick comment, and I've mentioned this on the show before, but we'll only mention it again in that you know, if you think about women's health, there are uh, at least 300 million women in the developing world today who want to have fewer children than they're having. And they don't have access to contraceptives for a variety of reasons. Um, whether it's that they live in patriarchal societies where they don't, uh, where they're not allowed to make that choice, they can't afford them, they don't have access or social taboos against using them, whatever it is, there are big barriers to them controlling their family size. And we know that uh, smaller family sizes lead to uh, the, the fastest pathway out of poverty, that you can have 
more education for the children who uh, are brought into the world. Um, it's important for a whole variety of reasons for women's empowerment to uh, enable and empower women to control their family sizes. And I've often wondered why there isn't more on this, like to mm-hmm. offer contraceptives that might um, be uh, not necessarily permanent, but can last for several years. And that could be, you know, uh, something that could be really cheaply manufactured and distributed uh, in a way. And so uh, for anybody out there thinking about what they might be able to do for women's health, that may be a, an idea worth pursuing for you out there. Do you have any thoughts on that, Kim? No, I, I think that's a really, really valid point. And women today don't have full control of their bodies. Um, and that is something that I think really needs to change. Um, well, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just think about how easy it is, uh, for a man to get a vasectomy, for example. Um, and, uh, and then wonder like, you know, and, and other things too. But anyway, it's a, another issue about which I have been, <laughs> about which I have been passionate for years. Um, there is a nonprofit organization called Pathfinder that I donate to that is uh, trying to help solve this problem. But I've always thought there must be some for-profit business solutions to help speed things along here. So I'll include a, a link in the show notes to Pathfinder for this, um, for this episode. And I want to reiterate, Kim, my gratitude to you for everything that you are doing and the pioneering work that you're doing to try to bring a new generation of not plant-based, but certainly animal-free alternatives to the conventional meat industry. It's really important. And I can assure you that I am rooting very hard for your success. Thank you, Paul. Also um, rooting for your success and the work that you you do at Better Meat Co. is really, really important to um, reducing our animal reliance in, in our food system. I think all of these approaches cell-based, animal-based, blended, all need to exist in tandem. Yes, I uh, I think it's kind of like fossil fuels in that if, if you think about how urgent and severe the problem of fossil fuel usage is, you don't want just one alternative. You don't want solar or just wind or just geothermal. You want a variety of alternatives. And the same is so in, in uh, conventional meat. You want uh, a number of alternatives, whether it's microbial protein, uh, cultivated meat, plant-based meat, hybridized meat, et cetera. Uh, you need lots of ways of trying to solve this problem. So I'm in agreement. And I'll tell you, Kim, you know, uh, if you ever did think about starting any of these other companies, you wouldn't be the only CEO to run some pretty cool companies. I know Elon Musk runs SpaceX and Tesla and the Boring Company and so and um, Solar City. Thank you. So I was trying to think Solar. What is it? Yeah, Solar City. So you know, if he can be the CEO of four uh, major companies, I think Kimberly Lee can can do the same. So I look forward to chatting with you on a subsequent episode of Business for Good about whatever company you're doing in tandem with, not after, but in tandem with, <laughs> with Prime Roots. I love that. Yeah. I think um, our aspiration for Prime Roots is to really build a food company of the future. And food is so fascinating because um, the longest lived institutions in the world are religions, alcohol companies, and food companies. And so um, I'm excited to scale Prime Roots to being, um, you know, really a food company of the future. And then Hopefully I can have a little side hustle um, starting an equally <laughs> large company um, in agriculture, women's health, or any of the other things that are interesting to me. 
Very cool. And one interesting thing to think about, what are the oldest institutions in, in human civilization for, for another episode? But Kimberly Lee, CEO of Prime Roots, thanks so much for joining us on Business for Good. And we'll look forward to following all of your exploits and uh, we'll look forward to uh, getting more and more of these products of yours out into the market so a greater number of people can enjoy them. Thanks so much, Paul. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.